Hi, I'm Deacon Jared. This is a sermon I prepared for June 20th, the day the Orthodox Church celebrated Pentecost. The reading for today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now it's been a few years. It was just a couple years before Beth and I had our oldest son, Thomas. The the two of us got to spend a week with uh, Beth's sister touring Paris. And I have to say Paris was amazing and that I'd go back in a heartbeat. But one of the most interesting parts of our trip, something that was a bit unique, was, was the timing of the trip. You see, it was 2003, and we landed in Paris on the same day that President George W. Bush launched the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq. It was the beginning of our nation's military response to 9-11. The U.S. launched that invasion with the support of an international coalition that included the United Kingdom, Poland, and Australia. But we, of course, weren't in England, Poland, or, or Australia. We were in France, and France had taken a stand against our invasion. I remember seeing posters at bus stops with headlines reading, Guerre Bush, or Bush's War. I have photographs of the protesters outside the U.S. Embassy and French police lining up in riot gear with their shields and batons standing at the ready to keep the peace. I don't remember any personal trouble related to our presence as American tourists in Paris, but I do remember one time, as I was browsing a little gift shop, the owner of that shop had the radio playing. It was a talk show, and I couldn't understand a thing, of course, because the announcer and his guest were speaking French. But then, in the middle of his monologue, I heard two English words, freedom fries. And I had to laugh, because I knew exactly what they were talking about. You see, in reaction to the French pushback to our invasion, some Americans had decided to shun anything French, and that included the most popular fast food side dish in America, French fries. And so a small number of restaurants in the Congressional Cafeteria renamed French fries to be Freedom Fries. Now to me, as an American, it was a little bit laughable. And if I were French, it would have been even funnier. I mean, the French don't even call them French fries. That's a completely American name for a pretty much completely American food. But 2003 wasn't the first time Americans had decided to change the names of their foods to reflect their negative feelings about other ethnicities. Have you heard of Liberty Cabbage or Liberty Sandwiches? Well, in 1918, as America fought Germany in World War I, anti-German sentiment here at home led to the renaming of sauerkraut as Liberty Cabbage and hamburgers as Liberty Sandwiches. 
But this anti-German sentiment during World War I went even deeper than its 2003 equivalent, leading to the banning of German classes in schools and German-speaking in public, even to German preaching in German-speaking churches. Right here in Iowa, our governor at the time passed the Babel Proclamation, an executive order forbidding the use of any language other than English in public. This executive order, a gross and obvious infringement on the First Amendment, was enforced by local municipalities who would fine violators. Fines were often in the $25 range, which might not sound like that much today, but would be the equivalent of about $450. Right here in Scott County, four women were fined a collective $225 by the County Defense Council when they were heard speaking German to one another on the telephones over the party line. This proclamation was made, accepted, and enforced because people were afraid. And in spite of the fact that these very same German immigrants had fled to America in an attempt to escape the oppression of the governments the U.S. now fought, Americans feared what they could not understand. Iowa's Governor Harding argued that his proclamation would, quote, save the lives of American boys overseas by curbing sedition at home. His rhetoric was backed by none other than President Teddy Roosevelt, who said in reference to the proclamation in Iowa, quote, America is a nation, not a polyglot boarding house. There can be but one loyalty to the stars and stripes, one nationality, the American, and therefore only one language, the English language. I have to say, I kind of love the irony of the name Babel Proclamation, a reference to the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. Doubtless, Governor Harding or his advisors chose that name to give the proclamation some air of Christian authority. But did Governor Harding or his advisors realize that they were naming their proclamation after the bad guys in that story? That evil King Nimrod was able to gather all people together in one place and attempt to build his sacrilegious tower specifically because all the peoples of earth spoke one language? And that it was God who sent the various languages to make sure that humanity was never able to come together in this way, but rather would fulfill his commandment to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. By insisting that all Americans speak only one language, Governor Harding and Teddy Roosevelt were standing on the side of King Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and against the will of God. I thought talking a little bit about separation caused by languages and fear of what we don't understand and the Tower of Babel would be a good place to start this morning, because many of our hymns see what happened at Pentecost as an answer to what happened at the Tower of Babel. Today's Kentuckian, for instance, reads, When the High One descended confusing tongues, he divided the nations, and when he distributed the fiery tongues, he called all to one unity. I think it is important to remember that the very first miracle performed by the Holy Spirit was to see the church preaching and teaching in many tongues. The passage read from Acts today begins with the disciples, the very same disciples who had fallen asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, who had fled in the face of persecution, who had hidden themselves behind locked doors when their Lord was hung on a cross, all gathered together and praying. Our icons always very stylistically show the twelve disciples or the twelve disciples in Mary, which is kind of how I always pictured this. But John Chrysostom makes the point, and I think he is right, that we are supposed to understand from the text that it was the entire 120 mentioned a few sentences earlier who were gathered in that room. So this group included not just the 12, but also Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, and about a hundred other disciples, men and women gathered together in prayer. 
Suddenly a wind roars through the room. Tongues of fire come to rest upon each of them individually. As the Holy Spirit rests upon 120 individual men and women in that upper room, we are witnessing the birth of the church. Notice the Holy Spirit did not enter a single temple somewhere, but just as Jesus had promised to the woman at the well, the time had come for every person to worship in spirit and in truth. After the apostles and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, only then are they moved to leave their silent prayer and begin proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We are told that in the streets of Jerusalem that day were many devout people who had journeyed to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost, a major Judean festival. The author of Acts goes out of his way to describe the very diverse audience, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Judeans and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Europe, Asia, and Africa are all represented in this list of visitors. There are Judeans, those interested in the Judean religion, and those with no Judean ties at all. And in a crowd like that, it would be most likely that all of these visitors would be trying to speak Greek, the most common language in the Greco-Roman world, especially the Eastern Greco-Roman world. And it would have probably been acceptable for the Aramaic-speaking disciples to attempt to reach out to this crowd and do their best in Greek. But this was not enough for the birthday of the church. Instead of insisting on Aramaic or Hebrew or even Greek or Latin, the disciples miraculously begin to speak to each of these in their own native languages. The first thing the Holy Spirit does on Pentecost is to demonstrate the path forward for this new Christian religion destined to reach the ends of the earth. And it is not to enforce a single language, like King Nimrod had at the Tower of Babel. Instead, the Holy Spirit caused the apostles to speak the various languages and dialects of all those present. God spoke to these men and women in their own tongues. And yes, in this story, the language is learned with miraculous speed, but we need not get caught up in this detail. When a missionary dedicates his or her life to learning the language of a people they hope to evangelize, it is no less the work of the Holy Spirit. When St. Cyril and Methodius worked with the Slavs, or when St. Nicholas worked with the Japanese, or St. Herman ministered to the Aleuts, or St. Patrick to the Irish, or St. Olaf to the Norwegians, or St. Sava to the Serbs, or St. Nina to the Georgians, it was no less the Holy Spirit that led them to learn, work, and write in the language of the people. It was love, patience, kindness, and faithfulness that allowed them to do their work. In fact, it is always love, patience, kindness, and faithfulness, the very fruits of the Holy Spirit, that ask us to take the time and effort to understand the many different peoples who live around us. It is a perfect love that in the end drives out fear. In different languages doesn't always have to mean literal linguistics. We all know different generations can have a hard time understanding one another, or different occupations, whether you are a teacher or a manager or a grandmother or a meteorologist or a nurse or a technician. We each speak different languages in our daily lives, but each of you are called to carry the Spirit of Christ to all those you work with every day. We come here, like the disciples gathered in the upper room, to pray, to purify our hearts, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we can carry that Spirit out into our world. Each of you was chosen specifically and on purpose to be the hands and feet and mouth of Christ, spreading his love into places that only you can reach with words that only you know. As St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, To the Judeans I became as a Judean, 
that I might win the Judeans. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. We must learn to speak the languages of all those around us. The story of Pentecost concludes with Peter, that same Peter who had sunk in the waves when he tried to walk on the water, who had fallen on his face in fear at the transfiguration, who had denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal, preaching his first sermon, witnessing to Jesus Christ's lordship without fear, in the streets of the very same city who had so recently crucified his Lord. Thousands are converted by his words, and a community founded in love grows up right there in Jerusalem. Acts tells us that this community, quote, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We often read into this passage the beginnings of the regular Eucharist that we are here today to participate in. Or we like to emphasize the notion of communal living. It's easy to admire this lifestyle, this sharing of everything in common that continues even to this day in our monastic communities. But I'd really today just like to emphasize the spirit of unity among these new Christians as they, quote, continued daily with one accord. With one accord. What a miraculous witness we would be to the world if we could do just this one simple thing. In an ever-increasingly polarized society where so many are willing to post on social media about how others are stupid or evil or I know better than you do, what a glory it would be if there were just one community where love, patience, and humility were the rule, where we listen to people who we disagree with, where we show patience with people who make mistakes, where we show humility understanding the limits of our own knowledge. Like the apostles, I suspect we would also find favor with all the people. Love is always the truest sign of the church. This is why the Eucharist, a shared meal, lives at the heart of our faith. We prove, or at least try to prove, every week that we are one, that we are a family, that we are indeed the church, by our willingness to come together and to share a meal. To be the church, we must do our best to remember that within the church there is neither Judean nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Indeed, St. Maximus the Confessor takes this Pauline notion even farther, saying, Men, women, and children, profoundly divided as to race, nation, language, manner of life, work, knowledge, honor, fortune, the church recreates all of them in the spirit. To all equally she communicates a divine aspect. All receive from her a unique nature which cannot be broken asunder, a nature which no longer permits one henceforth to take into consideration the many and profound differences which are their lot. In that way all are raised up and united in a manner which is truly universal. In her none is in the least degree separated from the community, all are grounded, so to speak, in one another by the simple and indivisible power of faith. Now that's the church. 
It is not a place to sing the prettiest songs or display the best icons, though those things may happen here. It is where humanity is called together in order to practice and grow our love. Jesus taught this to his disciples as he washed their feet. Quote, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I hope this is why you're here today, to love and to forgive one another, to live and pray in humility. If we had thousands here with us, but we couldn't love, we would be wasting our time. But I tell you, every time just a few of us are here, we have the potential to change the world. Acquire the spirit of peace, and a thousand souls around you will be saved, taught St. Seraphim of Sarav. If you are able to find peace here and to carry it out into the world, it will not go unnoticed. People are craving peace, and they will seek you out and ask you where you found it. I promise you. May we be the kind of community where we love one another in spite of our differences, where we make sacrifices for one another in spite of our own needs. May the fire of the Holy Spirit burn so brightly among us that the love is unmistakable. May we be instantly recognizable to any who walk through our doors as the very icon of that church which was founded 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit rested upon those 120 disciples in that upper room. 